Greetings, this is your host, Daniel Paris. The podcast you are about to hear has a lot of names of academics and references to academic literature. The fuller references to those individuals and their works will be in the two-episode broadcast, Fallacy or Philosophy, Finance's 60-Year Dividend Debate. Part one of that podcast has already been produced. Part two is on its way. And a PDF with all of the references to the literature will uh, eventually be posted to the website. So do not despair. If you hear a lot of names mentioned, the who they are and exactly where they can be found will be made available to you. Thank you. And now on to podcast seven. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Daniel Paris, host of Keep Calm and Carry On Investing. My guest today is Douglas Skinner, Deputy Dean for Faculty, and the Eric J. We want to make sure we get the initial correct. Eric J. Gleacher, Distinguished Service Account uh, Professor of Accounting at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Doug, thank you so much for for being on the show. Very happy to be here, Dan. So my reason for wanting to, to have you on is, at least for me, pretty exciting. Now, interviewing accounting professors may not be everyone's definition of exciting, but that's the type of person I am and I think a, a fair portion of our listeners are. So as people who follow the podcast or my other writings know, I have to do battle pretty much every day with the consequences of some other University of Chicago professors, past and present, who from their academic purchase have called into the question, the utility, the logic, indeed the very existence of what I consider a basic investing maxim, that as a minority shareholder in large corporations over which I or the investors essentially have no control, that I or they would want evidence of the success of the enterprise in the form of cash, hopefully paid uh, quarterly. As again, followers of, of the podcast will know for the past 60 years, the academy as it has made its way to Wall Street and Main Street, I'm not gonna just say the entire academy because you're evidence of the contrary, but the Academy, as it has made its way to Wall Street and Main Street, has really made light of that view. As a result of Eminem, and I'm not talking about a, a rapper, but uh, we'll get to who Eminem are, and their famous dividend irrelevancy proposition from 1961, then decades of differential tax rates, very real differential tax rates, that made the Academy wonder why dividends were paid at all. And finally, the behavioral finance community, which finds dividend seekers not that bright, it's been 60 years of taunting from the parapets, uh, Monty Python style. Now, uh, Doug, I've exaggerated all those points, and I'm well aware that Miller and Modigliotti, M&M, did not write that dividends were irrelevant and so forth. But still, it's an uphill slog to be a business investor in a stock market uh, when CFOs, MBAs, CFAs, and the language of the casual uh, practitioner are against it. And so that's led me to ask a simple question. Where's the academic literature on business ownership and investing that takes the perspective of minority shareholders seeking tangible evidence of success seriously. That led me to, to you and to a whole academic literature that is just as long and deep as the stuff that has made it to Wall Street and Main Street. I've spent the last couple months going through that literature. So Professor Skinner, let me ask by, start by asking this question. Why do you think that we practitioners, I have the CFA, I did not uh, go back to business school, but. Uh, why do we practitioners get such large doses of M&M and dividend irrelevance and dividend fallacy? And so little John Lintner, so little D'Angelo and D'Angelo, perhaps so little Skinner. Why aren't CFOs referencing Lintner? Why has that side of the equation, the other side of the equation, dominated so much? I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on that. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, and just to give you some perspective of how... Uh, 
my work with the D'Angelo's, which, which has started, I think, in the early 1990s on dividend policy progressed, essentially we're empirical financial economists, meaning we look at what the data are out there in the real world. We summarize the data, we present the data in various ways, and then we try and explain why it is. And in fact, this is exactly the Chicago approach to empirical economics as exemplified, for example, by my colleague, Gene Farmer, who is, of course, very famous for market efficiency and, and uh, his Nobel laureate winning work in, in that area. So we look at the data and I think when you look at the data on dividends and repurchases, you see very, very systematic trends in the data. And if you then try and reconcile those trends with the theories that we have in academic finance, you, you see some differences. And I mean, I would say to answer your question, uh, if I look at the ma major textbooks in corporate finance, so perhaps the most well-known corporate finance text around today is the uh, Brilli Myers and Allen textbook, which has been around for a long time. And if you look in that textbook, and I, I've taught out of the textbook myself, uh, you see that they start out, as all the textbooks start out with the Miller and Medigliani proposition, which as you referenced, doesn't actually say that dividends are irrelevant. What it says is that the timing and the form of dividends are irrelevant. And so that, that's a very important clarification because as I said, they're not saying that dividends are irre irrelevant to value because as I'm sure all of your listeners know, the value of any stock or indeed any asset is the present value of all of the future cash flows. And so if you change the total present value of the cash flows, you're going to change the value of the asset. So all M&M really said was under very stringent and as they recognized very unrealistic conditions, dividends. That, that part I have to interrupt. Relevant. Those unrealistic and stringent conditions never made it all the way through to Main Street uh, or Wall Street. Uh, I, I wish... Uh, uh, those conditions are shockingly stringent, and they're in the article, which is on the internet. You can read it. There, there are seven or eight of them, and uh, you know they don't really describe. It is normative work. It does not describe the world as it is. It describes the world as it would be in an academic classroom. But their conclusion has jumped over into the world as it is, and that's really where the the conflict is. Yeah, and you know, if you go back and you, I mean, they did not. I'm sure believe these to be realistic assumptions. And the, the three assumptions, just so we're clear, what we some people refer to as perfect capital markets assumptions are that there are no transactions costs of any kind, there's no taxes, and there's no information asymmetries. So inform, no information asymmetries simply means that everyone knows exactly the same thing. And I don't have an information advantage over you and in the context of dividends, corporate managers don't have any 
information available to them that's not also available to everyone else in the world. So they're patently unrealistic. And I would say the way that the academic literature has progressed since M&M, including in subsequent work done by Merton Miller, was to relax those assumptions and see what happened. And essentially the way you can think about the linkage between dividends and value, or more generally payout policy and value is because of what economists would call mechanisms or channels through which dividend policy can affect value that work because there are transactions costs in the real world, there are taxes in the real world, and there are information asymmetries in the real world. So for example, dividend signaling is all about information asymmetries and managers credibly communicating information that they have from within the company to the outside in a way that's credible, meaning backed up by cash flows paid as dividends. Let's just stop there just to uh, do some quick definitions. Uh, transaction costs. So in the academic literature, a, a capital gain is identical to a dividend. Um, and uh, Marilyn, Miller and Modigliani and most other, even to this day, uh, academic writers will say, assume that a investor is indifferent to a harvested capital gain or a dividend payment. That makes the, uh, the math of academic finance work pretty well. But the reality is, even in zero-cost trading, there are trading fictions. There were high costs when that argument was made. And it is uh, unrealistic to assume that a, uh, a, an investor is purely indifferent between a capital gain and a, um, and a going out in the marketplace and, and uh, engaging in a transaction. The other thing about taxes is uh, they exist. And they've been for much of the period from 1961 up until the mid-1980s and then more so in the, uh, up until about 2003, they were uh, disadvantageous to the dividend side. So, you know, that, those two conditions, I, I'm briefly blanking on the third, they, they are very, very significant. Uh, and the information asymmetries, yes. I mean, there, there clearly are information asymmetries. So those were not insignificant conditions of, of a, a, a chalkboard exercise in, a, in an academic setting. And they really matter in the, in the marketplace, the tax, the tax rate, the, the transaction costs, and you know, what management knows and what the investor, minority investor, can or cannot know. Right, exactly. And in fact, um, Fisher Black wrote a famous paper in 1976, and it was called The Dividend Puzzle. And what uh, Fisher Black essentially pointed out, made a very simple point, and, and this was, I believe, published in the Financial Analyst Journal. So it Correct. was a professional journal. And basically what he said was, well, if we look in the real world, dividends are taxed at a significant disadvantage. Right? You pay a lot more, a higher tax rate on dividends you receive than you do with capital gains. And in fact, if you don't realize the capital gains, you don't pay taxes ever potentially. And so he looked in the real world and he observed there's a whole bunch of firms paying dividends around here. And given this tax disadvantage of dividends, it doesn't make any sense and hence the dividend puzzle. So you essentially what Fisher Black pointed out is that if you factor in personal taxes, 
it's really, really hard to explain dividends. And there must be something that is very powerful that offsets that tax disadvantage. And that, I think, is what led people to this so-called uh, dividend signaling idea. And in fact, I think Mert Miller and um, a PhD student at the time, Kevin Rock, wrote a paper about dividend signaling, but there's been a whole stream of academic papers. There's Starting in 1979, uh, Sudipta uh, Chaturya, I can't, I butchered the name. <laughs> I know University of Chicago. Do you know the name, proper name of that person in 1979? I, I don't yeah. remember exactly the pronunciation. Yeah. Bhattacharya, maybe? Yes, Bhattacharya. Very good. So the previous episode of this podcast was all about the, uh, the dividend puzzle, Fisher Black, both in 1976 and then uh, 10 years later, a, a more detailed version of, of uh, Miller and Modigliani and then the behavioral finance uh, crew. And for better or for worse, I summarized it as follows. Miller and Modigliani making very uh, constrained statements. And then, as you point out, Miller tries to loosen them a little bit. But ver perfect market statements that in an ideal world, you wouldn't, in a normative state, state you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have these dividends. They don't make any sense. You have the uh, tax disadvantage at the time that that's written. You have the tax disadvantage at the time that Fisher Black is writing. The tax disadvantage diminishes significantly in 1985 and then gets much smaller in, in this century to the point where it's often effectively zero. There is no tax disadvantage. But by the time the, the mid-1980s occur, there's a new uh, wave of academic literature. Merton Miller at first is very uh, skeptical of it uh, and remains skeptical of it on the behavioral finance side and that people are uh, just make judgment mistakes or, or have less than perfect judgment and therefore they do things. And that's why dividends still exist. So a narrative over 60 years, which is largely a misinterpretation of academic finance, but what I am communicating back to the academy, at least in this format, is whatever you may say in the Journal of Finance is not exactly what gets said in the, in the financial analyst journal or on a conference call or in a conversation. In that whisper down the lane, the combination of M&M, of behavioral finance, of Fisher Black, um, has uh, really uh, pointed out the difficulties, emphasized the difficulties. As you point out, the University of Chicago method is look at the data and, uh, and then work with kind of a, the classic theory of, broadly speaking, uh, equilibrium and efficient markets. And dividends stand out as odd in that context for different reasons. Again, in the 50s and 60s and 70s for taxes and then more recently for behavioral finance reasons. So dividends are odd. And so that's what I, I you know, I, I don't dispute that from an academic perch, dividends look odd, that companies would pay them because of taxation reasons and that investors would seek them out for taxation reasons. And what, as I said, what I thought was so unusual is that there isn't substantially, there's much more academic literature than that, but it's not very well known on in the CFA program, in the MBA programs. And that's what, uh, you know, I, I, I'm trying to figure out why half of this story made it over the wall and half of it didn't. And I, I, I know there's no answer to that, but I just thought I'd, you know. Well, it's curious to me because, as I mentioned before, the brilliant Myers textbook, if you look at it carefully, they have the full story there. In fact, you know, some of the work I've done with Harry and Linda D'Angelo is actually cited in the Brilliant Myers text. So they do start with M&M, &M, but they take you all the way. And 
they talk about the different explanations and the different reasons. And as I started out by saying, the reality is you look in the real world, you know, in the US, US among non-financial firms, you know, 30% approximately of publicly traded firms pay dividends and they pay substantial dividends. And I talk to CFOs, including CFOs of companies that pay dividends. And one of the most important things they think about is making sure they keep paying dividends. So a la, it's very a la, a la, Yeah, a la Lintner from 1956. Well, yeah, they, I mean, they don't fully understand why, but they know to their investor base, dividends matter. And if you're a large company like Coke, for example, which has paid a dividend for many decades. 1920, 1919, one or the other. Right. And I think it's probably 60 years approximately that they've increased the dividend every year. So this is one of the very strong empirical regularities is dividends are set very conservatively such that they don't decline in nominal terms. It's a very powerful empirical fact that, you know, as, you, as you've alluded to, the work that I've done with Harry and Linda is really about trying to explain why it is. Why? So let, yeah, go ahead. Let's, let's go in that direction. Let's go from the whining part of the story. I spent a lot of my days whining. So let, let's go to the positive start part of the story. And I've referenced this fellow several times, and I'll continue to reference him. It's John Lintner. Harvard professor writes an article that companies like to pay dividends because they've paid them in the past and they pay them out of earnings. He writes that in 1956, five years before, also in the journal of finance, five years before Miller and Modigliani. Uh, to this day, you can find articles that are interviewing CEOs uh, as you've done. And they're basically, whether they're quoting Lintner or not, they're all still working on the various factors that go into corporations uh, paying uh, dividends. Very few of them and maybe this is a question, maybe I'm wrong here. Very few of them, either the academics or the corporations say, well, we pay dividends because that's the purpose of a corporation. Jensen gets closest. We'll get to Jensen in a moment. But I actually started this journey looking for a clear statement that a to be a minority shareholder since Burl and Means in 1932, which is the first significant account of modern corporations, publicly traded minor, uh, corporations in which a shareholder is going to likely not control the company. Since then, that the logic of being a minority shareholder in a business, whether it's publicly traded or private, when you do not have control, when you have a small stake, that you most certainly would expect a cash payment. It's consistent with Irving Fisher, with John Burr Williams. But in terms of a theory of the corporation, from a minority perspective, to me, it's puzzling that there isn't more literature a la Jensen, which, as I said, we'll get to why it isn't a maxim of business investment that minority shareholder would naturally expect uh, uh, the dividend. And the reason companies pay dividends is not because they paid them last year, a la Lintner, good stuff, love Lintner, but because it's sort of the right thing to do. And uh, I, I didn't encounter that. Maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe that's silly. Maybe that's, I'm looking for well, something that doesn't exist. I mean, I think that the, finance theory that we teach our students is fairly straightforward in the sense that the way we think about dividends, and this is in the sort of the neoclassical way of thinking about it, is, is that if a company 
has internal investment opportunities that are what we could call um, positive NPV projects. So in other words, if you've got projects that are going to exceed your whatever your hurdle rate is, weighted average cost of capital, for example, then you should be investing in those positive NPV projects. And if you're doing that, and you're investing in projects that are going to earn a return that exceeds the weighted average cost of capital or the opportunity cost of capital, as we call it, you should be retaining the cash and doing that because the shareholders will be better off ultimately. Um, conversely, if you're generating a lot of free cash flow and you don't have positive NPV projects, then you should be returning the cash to the shareholders. And I think that's the way in the paper that I have, uh, the review paper that I have with the D'Angelo's from 2009, we go back to Alfred Sloan, who was running GM in the 30s. And this is exactly the way he talked about dividend policy for GM. It's And for those of you listening, you can Google this. It's in the New York Times in 1935. It's a column. And it's as succinct a statement as to the purpose of a modern corporation, as you can imagine. We will retain whatever we need to invest in our businesses. Otherwise, we will pay everything out. It's exactly the way you would run a pizza parlor, General Motors, or any other business in a pure form. And it was uh, stated without the benefit of academic finance. And it, 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 makes a, it is a worth finding. You, it is uh, available on the internet. Uh, you can just Google it and find it. Sloan, 1935, New York Times. Right. And I think that's kind of what we teach in finance in, in that, like I said, I mean, the way to figure that out is do you have internally available projects or M&A projects, whatever they are, so that you can invest in that are going to actually create value for your shareholders. If you don't, you should pay it out. And this is getting to the Jensen free cash flow idea, which is if you've got free cash flow and you don't have available investment opportunities, dividends are a mechanism that essentially forces you to return the cash to the shareholders. And the key idea that's the basis for that is that dividends are what we call a credible commitment. So whether you're thinking about the free cash flow idea or the signaling idea, they're all dependent on the fact that dividends are a commitment. So if I say I'm going to pay a regular dividend this year of a dollar a share, then everyone understands for reasons we don't quite understand, but everyone understands that that $1 is a commitment to pay a dividend of a dollar, not just this year and next year, but for the foreseeable future. So even though there's no legal requirement or anything else, for whatever reason, the dividend is just this very powerful commitment mechanism. And that's essentially what makes the free cash flow idea work. And that's what makes the signaling idea work. So, and, and let's just kind of uh, back that, the weight of history. As a trained as a historian, I, I love anything that ends up being the weight of history. Let's back up a little bit just to identify Michael Jensen for the authors. For In previous podcasts and in my written work, I've uh, you know fully identified Miller and Modigliani, 
as a result of what I'm working on now, it'll be John Lintner, but you, you jump ahead or we jump ahead. Michael Jensen's a, a finance professor. He was a consultant, a businessman. In 1976, he comes up with an idea that explains uh, corporations and the, um, the hair on the story, the difficulties we encounter with corporations uh, in, in a nice way. And it's within this framework of agency costs. And the basic idea is, you know, you can mow the lawn yourself or you hire someone else to do it. If you hire someone else to do it, you both have a cash cost and they may not mow the lawn exactly the way you want to, but you're satisfied with it because you didn't have to do it. Uh, you don't do your own brain surgery. You hire someone else to do it because you're not skilled to. You don't uh, run a fleet of airlines because you don't have the scale to do it. And um, the agency model means you, you, you gather capital, you hire a board of directors. The board of directors hires uh, CEO. The CEO uh, hires uh, the managers and work gets done. But it's uh, uh, the agency costs, which can be cash costs or differences of interpretation or execution mean that the Coca-Cola Corporation may not, or GM might not always do exactly what you as a uh, shareholder, uh, investor, a person might think they should, but the most effective way for you to participate in uh, Coca-Cola or GM is uh, as a shareholder, and you just have to accept these agency costs. Ten years later, he wrote a subsequent article, which is about cash flow and the conflict between uh, investors and the managers of the company. And he, he's not really a dividend guy per se, but he does come out on the side of paying out free cash flow as a way for investors to keep managers honest. I tend to explain it more in terms of my teenager, that if my teenager has you know, uh, $5 in his pocket, he's going to spend it more wisely than his, if he has $50 in his pocket because his, manage, his judgment is is, is not perfect. The same logic generally applies to investors and, and managers. And so he liked Jensen, and this is you know a, a gross simplification, he liked the idea of heavy payout obligations on corporations to keep the managers honest. And that was an innovative statement at the time when the assumption is, as you say, if a manager has a project, they should invest in it if it's positive MPV. The problem is, as we know, not all managers' projects turn out to be MPV positive, and they can waste money. They can make bad decisions. And so there's this balance between letting management grow the company and preventing management from wasting money. And that's uh, kind of the tension that we all face as investors uh, uh, today. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So, yeah, Mike... Um came up with with that idea and, and really as you said it's it's about if you've got a mature company think about coke think about mcdonald's that's throwing off a lot of free cash flow what you worry about as a shareholder is the managers are, are not only potentially going to waste money and invest in value destroying projects they might even be expropriating the money they might be doing m a that makes them look good and makes them better off, but destroys value for the shareholders. But if you've got a dividend in place that forces them to return cash on an ongoing basis to shareholders, that's really going to discipline their spending. So I think, yeah, that's that's the main idea in this agency cost of free cash flow argument that that I think is, and, and the work that I've done 
I think that's a very powerful explanatory uh, for dividends because the empirical work that people have done academically really doesn't strongly support the notion of dividend signaling. And, and it doesn't have to, but it does explain why investors might put up with disadvantageous tax rates. Uh, that exactly. you know, this well, is still yeah. a way of managing and managing an investment. Yeah, there's a disadvantaged tax rate. I, my dividend is is taxed at a higher rate than a capital gain, but I get the upside of controlling management of of uh, uh, avoiding wasteful projects, and therefore the tax rate that was such a puzzlement to Fisher Black and many others becomes, in my perspective, again I, I don't I'm not Fisher Black. I wasn't at MIT. I don't have University of Chicago uh, Nobel Pri University of Chicago MBA uh, uh, or, or Nobel Prize, but for me, a I'm sorry, the tax cost is a reasonable agency cost for allow me to participate in the success of the Coca-Cola Corporation. In classical finance, it is not because in classical finance, I am indifferent to a, uh, a capital gain versus a, a, a dividend payment. One's taxed better than the other, so why would I want a dividend? And the same goes, you know. So th this is what I really was so pleased when I finally came upon your work with the D'Angelos. Can you explain a little bit? It seems like you know I don't see too many uh, spousal teams in uh, in finance. Uh, can you you know tell tell some nice stories about the D'Angelos and how you started working with them and and uh, got to yeah. Your... So I was a PhD student at Rochester in the mid nineteen eighties, and I went there in part because at the time Mike Jensen was there, and as an undergraduate in Australia, which is where I grew up. I was became enamored at reading Jensen and Meckling, the article you alluded to from 1976, and some of the other work there in accounting and finance, as well as the efficient capital market stuff. So I went to Rochester as a PhD student, and in my first year there, I was assigned a mentor, and the mentor I was assigned to was Linda D'Angelo. So I started um, talking to Linda, which meant I started talking to both Harry and Linda D'Angelo, who were both on the faculty there at the time. And that continued. Uh, I started working for them as a research assistant while I was in the PhD program. And then a couple of years later, they moved to Michigan on the faculty. And when I graduated from Rochester with my PhD, I moved to Michigan as well, in part because they were there and we'd already started talking about some of these ideas and that's that's how it developed and yes i think harry and linda you know worked jointly on a whole bunch of interesting empirical research over a long period of time and i think as you know they've they've retired now they live out in los angeles uh, they, they moved to usc uh, several years after i uh, was at michigan and so, yeah, they continue to be interested in uh, dividends and agency costs and uh, all types of shareholder activism type of stuff. So, and Harry is still working on capital structure. So, uh, you you have a number of articles together. Uh, the I wouldn't call it the conflict, but this this dividend puzzle produces enormous literature reviews. We have a very idiosyncratic one from George Frankfurter and Bob G. Wood from 2003 called Dividend Policy. 
I took uh, quite an effort for me to get a copy of it. It's uh, it's uh, George. I'm assuming it's Frankfurter is is has strong views. There is a dividends and dividend policy from Kent Baker. I'm sure you're aware of that. And so these extensive literature reviews, that's from uh, 2009, extensive literature reviews. But you and the D'Angelo's basically write a literature review which ties together, I'm not going to say these pro points, but is not dismissive of the fact that companies, you're coming up with an explanation as to why companies pay dividends, as opposed to, as I said, as I mentioned, led with the perception on Wall Street that, it, uh, and for investors, that dividends are just dumb. Uh, they should not be paid. They should not be sought after. You, you do, as part of this literature review, and it, it's it's long, <laughs> you come up with a framework that, ex- that ties together a lot of the work from Lintner on that explains why companies pay pay dividends. And you know, I wish your work were as well known among companies and investors and home offices and Wall Street as the other work. And so can we at least, and so the purpose of this evening's exercise is to, in a small way, make that happen. So can you you go over, we've already hit on some of the key points and a lot of it revolves around Jensen, but there's other other parts of, of your argument as to your explanation as to why company, why it's not abnormal or unusual or strange or just bad or irrational, why companies pay dividends and investors seek them out. Well, exactly. And I think we've already touched on some of the key points, but I don't think it's controversial that companies should return to cash to shareholders when they don't have good projects internally. And one of the points we make in the review article is that if you look at um, how companies progress, and one of the examples we give is Microsoft, is that companies go through a life cycle. They go through a period of high growth when they've got a lot of valuable internal and external investment opportunities. And during that period, they shouldn't be paying out dividends or returning cash to shareholders. But then there comes a point when they're generating a lot of cash from the business and they simply don't have available valuable investment opportunities. And so this was Microsoft in the early 2000s. And at that point, what what we document in the paper, which is just really what Microsoft did, is they reached an inflection point and they started paying regular dividends they started doing repurchases and they paid a massive special dividend. Now, what was interesting about that is that on the tax point is, of course, they didn't do that until Bill Gates had a foundation. So the dividends that went to him, which of course were very substantial, um, were tax advantaged because they went into the foundation and, and didn't hit his personal tax return. Uh, but the point was that that Microsoft started paying a dividend when they didn't have those available investment opportunities. And um, the second round of Apple, if you like, um, Apple paid a dividend very early on in its history in the 1980s, then they stopped paying a dividend. And then it wasn't until 2011 or 2012 that, in fact, it wasn't, I believe, until Steve Jobs passed away that Apple started fairly substantial payouts of dividends and repurchases. 
once again, it's because they were generating and continue to generate, of course, a ton of free cash flow. And that, while Steve Jobs was alive, it would just pile up on the balance sheet and no one could convince him to return it to the shareholders. Um, so th there's a, a real key issue here, again, and the, the article, I, I, the extended article, it is in a, I don't know, it's like an annual journal called Foundations and Trends in Finance, and the article is called Corporate Payout Policy, and it's it's 200 pages long from 2000. Um, yeah, uh, and, and just so uh, your listeners know, I mean, most of this work you can get at a website called ssrn.com. Correct. So, you know, it, it is readily available to people. SSRN, and uh, for those with uh, who belong to your college alumni societies, uh, you can get access to JSTOR, and JSTOR is another location for this. If, if you don't know what JSTOR is, just reach out to me and I'll explain how to access it. Key point here for both Microsoft and Miller and Modigliani and the situation about payout policy comparing in 1960 and, say, 2000. In 1961, we're in the midst of an, you know, the, an industrial expansion post-war. There are unlimited payout, unlimited investment opportunities, or the assumption is that there are unlimited growth opportunities. It's the environment which Miller and Modigliani work in. And they specifically say the investment policy of the company is going to exceed their free cash flow. So either they have to raise, you know, raise equity to fund it, uh, and if they pay a dividend, they have to raise more equity. If they uh, pay a lesser dividend, then they, they can, they can uh, raise less capital. Hence, dividend payout ratio irrelevance. Fast forward 40 years. We've shifted from an industrial economy to a service economy. Apple's a perfectly good example. In some of my other written work, you can see the, the free cash flow of Apple and Microsoft. Instead of making cars and tractors, they're making services. And we have the situation in which what I refer to as the company is are now internally financed. The dividends, the free cash flow exceeds capex and the dividends uh, that are that are being paid. They're internally financed. They have more than enough free cash flow. D'Angelo and D'Angelo phrase it a little bit differently. They specifically criticize Miller and Mandagliani and say, "Hey, that one constraint of a hundred percent free cash flow uh, uh, payout. If you loosen that." So they're coming at it from the other perspective. If you loosen that, then dividend payout policy and investment policy matter. So you, I don't think you were part of that article in 2005, but they explicitly say, as a practical matter, D'Angelo uh, uh, M and M are, are are not correct that the dividend payout ratio, when you are at anything less than 100% payout, you know matters. I, as I said, I get to it from a different perspective. I call it internal financing, but we've gone from a kind of an expensive CapEx-oriented economy to a service economy where there's a lot more free cash flow, where Apple and Microsoft do have that cash flow building up on the balance sheets. And even though they're able to grow, grow very rapidly, it's not as expensive to grow anymore. They're not buying uh, plant property and equipment. And so they, they can cover all of their investment needs and still have cash left over. It's not that their growth opportunities have slowed. It's that the in my argument, it's that the nature of those growth opportunities have changed. They're not as expensive. They have more free cash flow. They need to pay it out. Do you disagree with that, or is that change from an industrial economy to a service economy? I think that on its own significantly undermines M and M. But again, that's maybe my view, and you may have a different view from the academy. 
Well, yeah, I, I mean, I always go back to the, the framework, which is M&M and thinking about these different, what I call frictions. You know, to me, the important thing about dividends is, again, this commitment mechanism. And there are good reasons, whether we talk about dividend signaling or we talk about the free cash flow argument, there are good reasons why companies need to commit to paying out cash as dividends. And just to transition a little bit and, and talk also about repurchases, one of the really interesting things that, that's happened since repurchases have come on the scene, which I think repurchases began in this country in around 1983, when there was a change in law and regulation, but obviously repurchases are massive today. And what's, what's, what they've allowed companies to do is actually become even more conservative with dividends so, such that companies will pay a very consistent dividend, but then supplement the payout with repurchases. The difference being that repurchases involve absolutely no commitment. So they're like the anti-dividend and what we write in, in the review paper is essentially dividends and repurchases are complements, not substitutes. So a company like Coke will figure out, we're going to increase our dividends very, very steadily and very consistently. And then to the extent we have transitory excess free cash flow, we'll return that to shareholders as repurchases. And, that, and that's kind of the model. And that's fully consistent with this agency free cash flow view. And I mean, I, I do think that there is a version of the signaling argument that, is, that matters, which is, I think, the pure signaling view is that companies would signal changes in earnings expectations by changing their dividends. And that doesn't work at all in the real world. Yeah, I think the, the, the literature there is fairly clear that, that yeah. uh, the signaling is very good as a backward-looking measure of how things were, not how they uh, are the you know, subsequent five years. Right. So that form of dividend signaling doesn't work. But I do think it matters for companies to demonstrate their financial strength. And, of course, post 2002, when we had accounting scandals like WorldCom and Enron, there was a lot of skepticism about accounting earnings and lots of tricks with accounting earnings, arguably, and, and we can have a side conversation about that. But if you're paying out a substantial dividend as a fraction of earnings, I think that gives investors some confidence that there's something real that the, the business is generating. So there's some, it's what I've called earnings quality. Uh, so there's high quality earnings because they're backed up by a substantial dividend. And I think that does signal the financial strength of the entity. And I think that matters in a world where there is uncertainty and in a world where there are so-called information asymmetries. I do think that matters. And some of the recent work that I've done around the 2008-2009 financial crisis showed that, I mean, I think that's important for banks, um, is banks pay substantial dividends 
And I think they're signaling their financial strength, not so much to the financial markets, but more to those people who are making deposits. So Interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that from perspective. For a lot of the observers, uh, practitioners, listeners here uh, work in the investment industry, and, and banks really are a breed apart. Their financial statements are, uh, compared to Coca-Cola's, largely impenetrable. You just can't know. And so yeah. um, the dividend is, in effect, a measure of what's real. A bank will only pay a dividend if it really, really can, uh, both from a regulatory perspective and an operating perspective. And therefore, they occasionally cut their dividends when they can't. The earnings story from banks can be adjusted by loan reserve releases, amortization of this, that, or the other. You're the accounting professor. There's so many ways that bank accounting is opaque. We, When we look at payout ratios uh, for, in, in my day job, we look at payout ratios for companies. We look at the payout ratio, say, as a percentage of earnings. When we look at banks, we actually use the payout ratio minus any change in shares. We just look at the dividend and say, basically, the earn, what did the bank earn? It earned what it paid in a dividend plus or minus any change in share count, which is a shorthand, a heuristic, but it's uh, it basically highlights how a dividend is tangible and real and maybe the only thing that you can actually trust, as it were, coming out of a business entity if their accounting is particularly difficult. Yeah, you're probably more skeptical about bank earnings than I am, but, <laughs> but I think that's, yeah, that, that's right. I think there is, as I said, I think everyone understands what cash is, and as I said before, the the magic of dividends, if you like, is this very strong commitment that if you announce you're going to pay a certain regular dividend, and these days we're only really talking about regular dividends, special dividends of a really very rare breed. Outside the U.S., they're they're more common, and we in my day job we do try to be sensitive to the opportunities outside the U.S., but they are indeed uh, quite quite rare in the U.S. Yeah, and so dividends are this very strong commitment and they tell you something about the underlying quality and financial strength of the entity on an ongoing basis. And therefore, so, they're not a puzzle in that sense. I mean, again, we're talking at broadest, broadest levels. You know, they, they, there is a logic to it. They tell you about the companies. They are a tangible form of, of, uh, of uh, reward for investing. They are, they are a way, a la Jensen, of keeping an eye on the managers, they are not, you know, as again, you know, Fisher Black, uh, I'm not gonna say did a lot of damage, but f- they, they are not the puzzle. From my perspective as a business person who happens to own businesses through the stock market, dividend payments are not a puzzle. They are a normal manifestation of success. So I was, as I said, very glad to encounter a literature that may not have made it to the CFA programs, I understand it made it into your your uh, you know the the corporate finance books, but it's just not as well known as the more dismissive literature. And again, maybe dismissive is not the right term, as we were discussing offline and in an email. Miller and Modigliani were making very narrow arguments. It's it's what's happened to Miller and Modigliani. It's not what they said. It's what people think they said, and it turns out those are are very. You know, very different. What are you? I, I know you're the dean, which means you've obviously been very bad and are being punished, or uh, as the dean <laughs> of uh, the University of Chicago. But when you do get some time, what what are you currently working on? Uh, you have do have some other articles on the shift from dividends to repurchases. We can discuss that in a separate episode. I have very strong opinions about that. You you've mentioned dividends and earnings quality. That's some more of your work, and and uh, 
signaling, obviously. What uh, what's on the agenda if there is is one other than being a dean uh, at this point? Well, I actually very much enjoy being. I'm the deputy dean for faculty, so I manage our faculty, and it's a great faculty. So it's it's actually an enjoyable job. Um, a lot of the research I do is also about uh, earnings guidance, management guidance, so companies' disclosure policies, which is, of course, complementary to dividends. It's, it's all about, with earnings guidance, communicating to outsiders. And of course, there's a big debate about, is earnings guidance a good thing or a bad thing, et cetera. So, um, I've followed that research, I've done research on what was called management forecasts and is now called earnings guidance. And I've been doing that research almost as long as I've been working on the dividend policy work with the DeAngelos. Well, we will have to have you back on the show to discuss that. I, I find it particularly for companies that are under stress that uh, end under Reg FD, which is a fair disclosure rule that came into play a couple decades ago. We, in my day job, we, my investment team, spend a lot of time looking at management communications and what we can glean from them, and particularly from changes in communications. It's not enough to hear what they say. You hear what they say 10 times, and uh, is the narrative that they have created changing and, and you know, we, we consider that to be valid information and, and we use it in our investment process. So uh, we'd be interested to, to have you back to discuss that. Uh, my guest has been uh, Douglas Skinner, the Eric Gleacher Distinguished Service Professor of Accounting. Is, did I get that close enough? That's um, great. <laughs> at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Doug, uh, thank you so much for the work that you've done with the D'Angelo's and separately. And, and thank you so much for being on the show. Very happy to do it. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity.